Welcome to this Federalist Society faculty book podcast discussing Professor Brian Colt's new book, Constitutional Cliffhangers, A Legal Guide for Presidents and Their Enemies. Thank you for tuning in. Constitutional Cliffhangers envisions six constitutional controversies that could arise in selecting, replacing, and punishing a U.S. president. None of Colt's scenarios, such as the criminal prosecution of a sitting president, a president pardoning himself, or a two-term president attempting to stay in power, have actually occurred, though some have come close. In the book, Colt provides a legal guide to navigating these situations, should they ever occur, and in the process offers insight into pertinent structural and procedural provisions in the Constitution. Brian Colt, a professor of law at Michigan State University, is joined by critical commenter Seth Barrett-Tillman, a lecturer in the Department of Law at the University of Ireland, Maynooth, to discuss the book. As always, the Federalist Society takes no position on particular legal or public policy issues. All expressions of opinion are those of the speakers. And now, Professor Colt. I'd like to thank the Federalist Society for putting this together and to Seth Barrett-Tillman for his participation. I'm Brian Kalt from Michigan State University College of Law, and my book, Constitutional Cliffhangers, A Legal Guide for Presidents and Their Enemies, is about six situations in which constitutional provisions for selecting or replacing or punishing presidents are in question, and it leads to some interesting situations. The six situations are first, a sitting president is criminally prosecuted. Second, a president purports to pardon himself. Third, cabinet members try to oust a president who they allege is disabled, and the president in turn tries to oust them. With the president and vice president dead, the secretary of state and speaker of the house fight for control of the presidency. Fifth, an ex-president is impeached after leaving office. And sixth, a two-term president attempts to stay in power after his second term. Each chapter starts out with a fictional scenario that dramatizes that chapter's danger, and then the chapter continues discussing the most likely legal and practical issues that would arise as the drama proceeded. And by the end of each chapter, the reader should have an idea of how the cliffhanger might arise, how it would probably play out legally and politically, and what, if anything, we could or should do to prevent it. As an example, I'll give Chapter 4, which is my personal favorite. And in Chapter 4, as I mentioned, the vice presidency is vacant, the president is killed, and this touches off a succession dispute between the Speaker of the House and the Secretary of State. There are serious constitutional worries with having the speaker in the line of succession. There is not unanimity, but a fair consensus among legal scholars and some members of Congress who have explored the issue that there are problems with that. The chapter shows how the facts on the ground could lead to a power struggle. In an ordinary situation, I think everyone agrees, the speaker would just take over. There would be no controversy. Everyone learns in school that the speaker is next in line, and if there's nothing else going on, that's just how it would go. But Chapter 4 shows how if things are just so, we could have a big problem on our hands. In my scenario, the speaker is from the party opposed to the president, as more often than not has been the case in the modern era. The speaker is instrumental in stalling the president's nomination to fill the vacancy in the vice presidency. So the speaker is using, in the chapter it's a female speaker, is using her power to 
keep herself next in line for the presidency. And the speaker is embroiled in some political disputes with the president in which the rhetoric has gotten very overheated. In fact, the president is assassinated by someone who is not only motivated by that rhetoric, he is motivated by the specific desire to hand the presidency to this speaker. All of these things combine to change the political situation to one in which I think we could imagine part of the country, in my scenario about half of the country, rejecting the speaker's assumption of power. Some people surely would want to just follow the succession law. They wouldn't like it, but they would say, okay, well, that's just the way it goes. The speaker takes over. But in the fact pattern, as I've laid it out, I think a lot of people would see it as something of a coup d'etat. And they wouldn't care so much about the succession law as finding whatever legal argument they could that would serve the interests of their side in the struggle. And because, as I mentioned, there is a lot of ammunition there, there's a lot of legal experts have weighed in on this and said that there's a big problem with the speaker being in line for the presidency like this, the partisans would latch on to that and we would have a real constitutional cliffhanger. Along with the six specific cliffhangers, I have an introductory and a concluding chapter that both look for deeper meaning in all of this. So, for instance, as I've said, many of these intricate legal questions wouldn't turn just on who had the best legal argument. They would be influenced heavily by which side is stronger politically. And so I explore how law and politics interact in cases like these, because I think that that factor is very significant for thinking about constitutional interpretation and constitutional design. My first task in the book, though, I think, is to convince the reader that these are things worth worrying about. These aren't just idle academic speculations, the product of my fevered imagination. I, I think the case is strong that we do need to take these sorts of things seriously. In the history of the United States, we've had numerous constitutional cliffhangers, not the ones in the book. The ones in the book are things specifically that haven't happened yet, but things like them. And we've had a lot of close calls as well. Our typical pattern when these constitutional problems flare up is that they just get settled how they get settled by that mixture of law and politics. And then we say, well, in retrospect, it was sort of obvious that this would happen, and it was obvious what the proper resolution would be, and it's all fixed now, and we don't have anything to worry about. And then sometime down the line, the next thing happens, and the pattern repeats itself. And I'd like to read a passage from the book that makes this point. I'll begin the excerpt. The whole election turned on a few hundred disputed votes in Florida. There had been ultra-close presidential elections before, and there had been ambiguous results in individual states before. It was only a matter of time before both happened at the same time. Unfortunately, no steps had been taken to prevent it. The problem was that there were no rules for resolving a dispute like this. The quintessential American mixture of politics and litigation filled the void. The Republicans fought to defend their initial lead. The Democrats fought to open things back up and recount the votes. The Republicans controlled key posts in the state government. The Democrats won key victories in Florida State Court. The Republicans took their case to Washington, D.C., where Republican-appointed Supreme Court justices declared that there was no time for recounts, handing the election to the Republicans. And so in 1877, Rutherford B. Hayes became our 19th president. You might recall some similar things that happened in 2000. That's the end of the excerpt. The issue in 1876 and 2000 was that our electoral system allows for the margin of error to greatly exceed the margin of victory. We didn't fix it after 1876 or after 2000, and I think it's worth thinking about why that might be. 
So my book tries to break through that complacency and figure out how these traps get created, when and how we step in them. Um, I've always been optimistic that if we take the time to think about these things in advance, we might be able to fix them. Uh, that said, I, I understand that there's not some uh, red light or siren that goes off in Capitol Hill every time a law professor writes something about a constitutional problem. And so in some of the chapters, I do conclude that there's not much hope for anyone fixing the problem in advance. Uh, in those cases, I think at least the book is useful for the people embroiled in the dispute, and that's uh, why the subtitle of the book is A Legal Guide for Presidents and Their Enemies. The main audience for my book, I hope, though, are just general readers who I hope can enjoy the drama in each chapter and learn a little bit about the legal issues underlying it. Uh, this is serious stuff, but I think it can also be a lot of fun. And, uh, and with that, I'm anxious to hear what, uh, what Seth has to say. Okay. Well, thanks very much for that intro, Brian. Uh, my name is Seth Barrett-Tillman. I'm an American public law scholar who teaches law abroad. I teach at the National University of Ireland at Maynooth. And I want to also thank the Federal Society and Tyler Lowe, who is the Assistant Director at the Federal Society, for this opportunity to interview Professor Caldor, if not interview, at least discuss with him his new and very fine book. I've never met Brian, uh, Professor Call, uh, by which I mean we have never been in the same room, at least as far as I know. Uh, but I have talked to him by phone on occasion and corresponded by email now and again. And those occasions in the past have always been a pleasure, and I'm hoping this one will be too. Um, I uh, not only read Constitutional Cliffhangers, but I, I saw a preliminary draft of it. I was very excited about it then, and I remain uh, a big fan of this book. It came out under Yale University Press. It came out this year in 2012. Unfortunately, it's a little bit on the pricey side, as I think Brian would acknowledge. But if you can't afford your personal copy, there's always a library. It's a slim volume. It's 180 pages, which makes, means it's very readable. You could read this book in maybe two sittings. It has 60 pages of endnotes, and those endnotes are very useful if you want to find the legal authority, the legal basis, and other articles to read on the subject matters that capture your interest. It's a very complete set of footnotes. I won't say that it's encyclopedic in the sense that Brian gets every last relevant article, but I think if you look up the stuff Brian flags to you, the footnotes in those articles will give you an encyclopedic list of the widest body of literature and other authority. And it also has a thorough index of the book. And as Brian said, it sets up these six hypotheticals. They're all very interesting. And this book does do what it sets out to do, which is the first step in any successful book, because so many books don't even get past that first step. And it surveys the arguments on both sides of each of these hypothetical scenarios. It's a, it, the, the discussion on each side of the issue is well-informed. And the book would be very useful, I think, even to experts. That is, if you were a litigator faced with one of these situations, this would be a good place to start down, or even to freshen up if you hadn't been considering these issues for a while. But it's much more than that. It's much more about than being a useful starting point for the expert. This book is great, I think, for the educated and lay public. And I mean that in the sense that so much of what's done in law is so entirely abstract. It's at the wrong intellectual level. It's pedantic. It's difficult to read. And it makes use of jargon and legalese. Brian doesn't do any of that. And I'll go one further. It's a pleasure to read. As a matter of fact, it's lucid. Non-lawyers, friends, frequently ask me, what's the book I ought to read if I want to sort of get a background in certain areas of, of constitutional law or constitutional law broadly? And the truth is there's really very little out there you could recommend to the educated person who's, who's not a lawyer in the sense of getting a, a broad overview. One of the recent exceptions is Akhil Amar's book, Constitution Biography. I like that book also, but it's very historically top-heavy. And that sort of 
historical top-heaviness is not a good reflection of where American law really is. There has been a movement in recent years, particularly under the influence of people like Justice Thomas and Justice Scalia, the new originalism, or the not-so-new originalism, you might say, but his historical treatment of law is still not really the, the dominant paradigm. Going back to Brian's book, this is another book you could sort of recommend to that educated lay person who's looking to know more. But I'll even go one step further. I am the thesis advisor for LLM students, uh, Masters of Law students and MLS students, two different master's programs. And I often point to Brian's book now and say, this is the way you want to write. Brian says that at the start of each chapter, he has a little hypothetical. Those hypotheticals, those squibs that he puts in italics at the start of each chapter, not just each chapter, but each main section in each chapter, are wonderful. They grab the imagination, they focus the reader, and they tell you what the issue will be under discussion. So with all that stuff out of the way, I want to ask Brian a few questions. Some of them are broad and about the narrative, and then I sort of want to drill down about some of the hypotheticals he talks in his book, and we'll see just how far we could get into the discussion. Brian, I have a question about your narrative. As a matter of fact, it's, it's actually before your narrative. I have a question about your title. Why is this constitutional cliffhangers? Why isn't this just presidential cliffhangers? Then don't answer that yet, because I want to follow up with related narrative questions for you. Most of the authority you cite in your book, and I can't say I'm surprised, but I'd like to know why. Most of the legal authority you cite in your book is judicial authority and other academic authority. But given that the focus of this book is so focused on the executive branch, I would have expected there'd be Office of Legal Counsel authority almost as much as I saw academic authority and judicial authority. And I'm wondering why there wasn't more use of executive branch authority, because the focus of the book was on presidential-related cliffhangers. And the third thing I'd like to ask, and again, this, these are all related narrative questions, is would you agree with me that just as your book has a presidential focus, the largest focus of our colleagues in legal academia uh, doing American public law is exactly what you are doing, which is a focus either on judicial decision-making or executive branch decision-making, to the near total exclusion of consideration of legislative branch authority and legislative branch practices, so much so that if you take out of the body of academic writing the filibuster, recess appointments, and impeachment, there's almost no work going on in the American legal academia about legislative branch lawmaking and the naughty questions that involve the legislative branch. So those are three related questions, and I'd love to hear what you have to say. Okay, well, those are great questions. The first one about the title, I wanted the title to be catchy, uh, two words, and I thought I could convey the presidential focus of it sort of in the subtitle and leave myself room maybe for some future writings that deals with constitutional cliffhangers in other areas. You could have plenty in Congress, for instance. And, in fact, I'd somewhat embarrassedly admit I've been working for about 15 years now on an article with a friend of mine on a congressional constitutional cliffhanger, but I wanted to keep it uh, short. On the use of executive branch authority, I guess now that you mention it, I, I, uh, I didn't cite that much, but I feel like I cited what was there, what was relevant. There are some chapters, for instance, on the prosecution of a sitting president where I draw fairly heavily on some of the memos that came out of the Nixon administration and the Clinton administration, and similarly on the self-pardon issue, and there's a little bit in some of the others as well. I think, again, I'm not aware of anything specifically that I overlooked. 
But I cite mostly judicial and scholarly authorities, and I think you sort of answered the question when you pointed out that this is sort of the traditional approach, and I'm sort of trying to come at this as, when these things happen, what would people run to? What would people read? And I think that they would go to the case law, and they would go to the law review articles, and that's what they would bludgeon the other side with or attempt to, because those have the authority of a relatively neutral position, whereas the Office of the Legal Counsel generally has, I don't want to say that they're disingenuous about it, but they're arguing from the standpoint of their client, as it were. But I think that's a fair point. I think it would be helpful if more of the Office of Legal Counsel memos, including the historical ones, were more accessible. Because I know a lot of times we feel like if something can't be found by simply Googling it in the first 10 hits, then it doesn't exist. And obviously that's not true. And so I found things, and our great library at Michigan State College of Law found things, but it was harder than it should have been, and I think that might have an impact too. On the third point, focusing on the judicial and the executive, not so much the legislative, it's funny. I mean, it's not out yet. It'll be on SSRN soon, but I have an article forthcoming in Pepperdine Law Review about specifically that and looking at the Ninth Amendment in particular in Congress as a much overlooked avenue. And I think the issue here is somewhat circular. That is, we focus on the judicial and executive constitutional mechanics and decision-making. We think of running to the court to resolve these disputes to the exclusion of the legislature, and that reinforces itself. Congress itself doesn't take its constitutional interpretive responsibility as seriously as it should, and when it doesn't, then people neglect Congress as a potential decision-maker. And so, again, that reinforces itself as well. It's somewhat circular. But I think that actually one of the things I liked about this book, and I teach Constitutional Law 1, the structure course, rather than the rights. The rights course seems more about the judicial focus and Supreme Court decision making. But in the book, there are chapters in which, okay, they're trying to prosecute the president. That's something that would be in court from the start. And there would be briefs, and there would be legal arguments, and there would be appeals, and it would be settled in court. But something like ousting a disabled president, the Constitution gives that to Congress or the impeachment chapter or even, to some extent, the line of succession chapter and anything electoral. There's that potential, and I get into that, and that, to me, is another fun thing to think about because you've got another variable to add to the mix, not just what would the court do, but also what would Congress do vis-a-vis the court, who would go first and then what effect would that have? And so I think that actually that's one of the things I liked about writing this was the extent to which I could talk about the legislative role in all of this, although, as you point out, it still falls short of what I think you and I both would like it to be. That's a very full answer. I consider myself answered. And what I'd like to do now, to the extent we could do it timely, is I want to pose to you a constitutional cliffhanger that's not in your book. And then I'd like to turn to one that is in your book. So I want to give you a hypothetical constitutional cliffhanger and see what we could make of it ourselves. I'm interested in what you might do with it, knowing full well there really isn't a lot of authority in a question like this. And I'm going to give you a legislative cliffhanger. I want you to imagine, Brian, that Congress is in the process of meeting. There have been duly held elections for all 435 House seats. Every legislative seat in the Senate is filled, likewise, either from two years ago, four years ago, or in the current election. 
There are no credential disputes. There are no election disputes. They're all there. The president comes in to give his State of the Union address, and we are the victim of a terrorist attack, perhaps state-sponsored. And almost everybody is gone. The presiding officers of the two houses are gone. Their professional staff is gone, like the House clerk and the Senate secretary. The whole cabinet line of succession, they got them all, and they got the president and the vice president. There is a rump Senate left. We've got five of 100 senators left. But surprisingly so, a good chunk of the House escaped the attack. And we're left with 200 of 435 House members, and it's fairly representative of the country. As a matter of fact, the division in the remaining rump House pretty much follows the party division that was in the pre-attack House. And there's even some geographic disposition. And the remaining House members meet, and they don't have a speaker, and they think they ought to have one. And they want to have a speaker because they need someone to have you know, just for continuity, they needed to conduct internal business, they needed for warrants and subpoenas. They also want to be able to give comfort to executive branch officials, because the country's in a crisis, as you can imagine. And executive branch officials might not have all the statutory and regulatory authority they need to deal with the crisis. There's no president to order them what to do. And it would just be helpful if someone in authority could tell them, do what you think you have to do, act in good faith, and we'll make sure you're not impeached. But the most important reason they want to have a speaker is because, as you know, the speaker's next in the line of succession. And my question for you, and I'll read the two relevant provisions in just a moment, is how would you advise the Rump House? Would you advise them that less than a majority of the full authorized membership of the House can continue to function in a constitutionally valid, recognizable way and can appoint a speaker, leaving aside the problem that you address in your book that there is some doubt of whether legislative officer succession is itself constitutional, but leaving that problem aside, could they appoint a speaker? And I'll just point out the two relevant provisions. One of them is in Article 1. It simply says the House of Representatives shall be composed of members chosen every second year by the people. Very straightforward. We all know that. And the second one is a little bit more difficult. Each House shall be the judge of the elections, returns, and qualifications of its own members. And this is the key part. And a majority of each shall constitute a quorum to do business. So I guess the first thing what I want you to do is neutrally advising both sides, can they continue to conduct business? And at the policy level, if we're creating policy to deal with these contingencies, in your own estimation, is the danger we ought to be worried about more so the next John Wilkes Booth who might take one person out of the line of succession, or something much more fantastically worse, war, international terrorism, state-sponsored terrorism, which is a more empirical question, but it does play into how we design reforms. So I gave you a lot, and that might be a little bit of a curveball, but I know you can do it. So what's your advice? Well, that's a great question. This is exactly the sort of thing that you and I like to sit around and talk about with our friends and colleagues, and people who like that sort of thing, I think, are the ones who would like the book, I would, off the top of my head, just think the first question is, and we're assuming that they got the member of the cabinet who doesn't go to the State of the Union address. Uh, they got them all. The I'm not letting you out that way. I would just point out that it's because of that sort of the Mars attack scenario that they do that, and we sort of chuckle about it, but I think it's very important for that reason. The quorum requirement, it says a majority of the House, and so the question is, who is the House? And it's my understanding that if a seat in the House is vacant, then that's 
sort of taken out of the denominator. That is, you don't need 218 votes to pass something in the House of Representatives. If there are 10 vacancies, then you only need 213. Or if there are people who aren't there that day, then you need less than that. And that if that goes for voting, I would think that that would go for I don't think it goes by day by day. I, I think it's outstanding members who are still alive and serving. Okay, so still alive and serving. So if you have 200 people in the House and 235 vacancies, I think that you have 101 out of the 200 there, then you have a quorum. Mm-hmm. Maybe the bigger problem would be if there are 235 who are not dead, or maybe they are and we don't know. They're in the hospital, right? I mean, there's in the rubble of the Capitol that just got destroyed. But I think that the quorum requirement would allow them to conduct business to select a speaker, and constitutional problems aside, I think that if the entire rest of the line of succession has been wiped out and the only thing we've got is the House choosing a speaker and then that person becomes president, I think that would be okay. They should do that, and the speaker should then step into the presidency, and we would slowly reform the government, and hopefully the Senate could confirm nominees swiftly in that situation. I imagine they would, but we would also have out in the states the governors appointing new senators and holding by-elections for the House to get reconstituted. And recently, uh, Congress's attention to succession issues has been focused on these sorts of situations, making the line of succession long, making it geographically more diverse so that a disaster in one place doesn't have the effect like you described. They've been talking about this. They haven't really done anything, but at least they're talking about it. My hope is that while they're talking about it, while they're noodling around with the line of succession, maybe they could fix this potential constitutional problem with having the Speaker and the President pro tem in the line of succession as well. People say that when they're dismissive of the things that I'm writing about, and I'm dismissive of it too. I say, well, look, you can't count on them just fixing this. Brian, I, I don't that's think that's, not, that's a fix. I think that before makes it worse. I like it that the president protests it. They have bigger fish than this. Of course, they're not doing those things either. So that's why I think it's helpful for the general public to think about these things as much as possible and sort of tee these things up when they happen. I think the danger that we should worry about is the combination of the probability of the harm and the magnitude if it does occur. And so I think that points towards the terrorist attack scenario as being more significant a problem than the assassin. That's very interesting. You think the terrorist attack problem is significant and maybe even more significant than the Wilkes Booth type assassin. I'm very glad to hear that. Let me push you on this legislative... Well, well, hold on. Let me step back a bit on that, because I think that maybe I misunderstood you, but the idea is that if someone assassinates the president, and maybe also, you know, the full John Wilkes Booth scenario, they tried to kill the Secretary of State, they tried to kill the Vice President. I don't know what they did to the Speaker, the President Pro Tem at the time, but... The assumption is that if those things happen, it would be terrible, but we have rules in place to tell us what to do. The problem with the speaker being in the line notwithstanding, we can have someone just step into the presidency, and and the terrorist attack is where you have bigger problems because we might exhaust that line of succession. We might be in that no-man's land. We might have problems, even if the rules do allow us to continue, problems of legitimacy. So that's why I said what I did, and I hope I didn't misunderstand the question. No, you didn't. I'm happy to have you reaffirm your position. That's fine. Let me push you, though, a little bit on this. 
that there are competing precedents from U.S. history with regard to how the houses have organized themselves on this question. The dominant view today within the experts in the houses are the floating quorum, depending on living members, which would lead to the result that 200 members could organize along the line you said, because the quorum would sort of contract to be 100 on one of the remaining living members. But historically, not everyone has held to that. And there are competing precedents out there from earlier legislatures. And if you had to pick the dominant consensus in academia, it's probably that we have a fixed quorum. Not that there are many people doing this sort of research, but for example, there's a recent article by John Brian Williams and William and Mary Quarterly. And one might make the argument that, you know, if you look at the academic consensus, as you are willing to do with legislative office of succession, there's an argument on the other side, and you couldn't appoint the speaker. But then you have this sort of pragmatic argument that you really need to appoint one, so maybe there ought to be some flexibility there. You have competing textual considerations, as I think you'd acknowledge. The textual clause that talks about a majority of the House sort of leaves unclear what that really means. Would you agree with me that, especially while you do acknowledge that this is a consequential risk of the destruction of the line of succession that we ought to consider, would you agree with me that this is an example of a legislative cliffhanger, sure. akin to the ones you develop in your book? Yes, I think that that's something we're thinking about. I'm not familiar with the literature on denominators, but it, it seems, I mean, just looking at the Constitution and talking about the majority of the House, there are places where they talk about sort of fixed denominator and they make it specific, they make it clear there. So I think the fact that they don't there makes me not as worried about it. But I think this is also an example of the mixture of law and politics. If we're in a situation where the only way that the country can actually exist or, or respond to this existential crisis is to possibly take the view of the minority in this legal dispute about the proper way to create a quorum, I think not only would we definitely do what we had to do, but that that would be the right thing to do as well. Okay. Brian, let me, uh, let me continue to push you a little bit on this. On the section on legislative officer succession, which is a related issue to the one we've been uh, discussing, you use what I consider to be some fairly strong words against Truman. Let me read, you to, read to you what you wrote. When Vice President Truman took over after President Roosevelt's death in 1945, he was uncomfortable with the 1886 Act. Cabinet succession meant that Truman could potentially appoint his own successor, and he felt strongly that this was undemocratic. Later on, you say, the current succession law sprang from President Truman's personal preferences. You're almost presenting this as willful on his part. And what I'm wondering couldn't we have painted, couldn't you have painted a more balanced picture along the ones you just did in your discussion with me? Truman was the president, after all, who had nuked Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Truman was the president that lost China. He had internal security risks. He had Alger Hiss. He had the Rosenbergs. He had a fractious Old South that hadn't gone through the Civil Rights Movement. Wasn't Truman's reform of the 1947 Act exactly what we needed to do to prepare the nightmare of a knockout against the whole group of statutory successors? Well, you know, we could talk all day about the deficiencies in the 47 Act. I think that when I credit him for being the prime mover there, it's because it would not have passed that way if he hadn't been okay with it. And it probably wouldn't have sprung onto the agenda unless he had pushed it. So I think he does. Well, I completely agree with that. My concern is that the words you used to describe Truman, his personal preferences, he felt strongly, almost well, he make did. it sound like you're suggesting 
that he wasn't a deep thinker and didn't have good reason for putting legislative officers in the line of succession. I think he had very strong ones. I think the reason he did were just that he didn't want to tell the country right after our first nuclear encounter with the foreign power that we were at risk of being nuked ourselves. And rather than telling the country he was afraid of Washington being nuked, he said, I think the speaker is more democratic than the cabinet member. I think that his personal take on this was based less on, and I'm not a student of the Truman presidency, but just having read the secondary sources here, my sense is that he was not acting out of a concern about the nuclear world. And in 47, it wasn't totally into the Cold War yet, but it was more about how he felt having just succeeded to the presidency. The line of succession was not a moot point to him because he had succeeded to the presidency. There was no vice president because we didn't have a 25th Amendment yet. And so the question of who was next in line was extremely relevant. It was not just an academic scenario, as it is to a larger extent with the 25th Amendment allowing vice presidential vacancies to be filled. And I didn't play this part up that much. He had a personal problem with his secretary of state. So people liked Sam Rayburn. Truman didn't like his secretary of state. So I think that this is coming out of that to a certain extent. And I don't think that that's a bad thing. I don't think that that's an illegitimate thing to be motivated by those sorts of calculations. The problem comes when that leads you to disregard the legal limit that the Constitution provides. And so that doesn't trump the question of whether the speaker should be in the line of succession. Truman wasn't so concerned about that, and neither was the House or the Senate. Not enough, I would say. All right. Well, that's a very fulsome answer, and I appreciate that, Brian. And let me push you on what you just said, going past the legal limits. So we might as well explain to all the good people who haven't read your book what we think that legal limit is. The legal limit is that the Constitution permits Congress to designate an officer to succeed to the presidency in the absence of a vice presidency. That certainly includes cabinet officers. It almost assuredly, though there might be some disagreement about whether an Article III judge could be put in, there is a live dispute about whether Congress could put its own presiding officers, such as the Speaker of the House and the President Pro Tem in the line of dispute, and that dispute is pretty old. One of the things I was sort of confused in your book was, is your problem with the 1947 succession statute, or one or of two things, or both? That is, do you believe that the succession statute is flatly unconstitutional? Or do you believe that, unconstitutional or not, there's an easy remedy, and Congress ought to use it and take this question off the table? Or do you believe both? Because there's language of all three in your book, and it leaves me in a quandary why you're being, I don't know how to put this, why you're leaving the reader unsure what you really believe on this point. Well, I think the main reason I'm leaving the reader unsure of what I personally think is because I don't think that what I personally think is that important. I'm just one guy. And I wanted to put both sides out there because I think that in a dispute like this, both sides would be out there. It wouldn't be enough to say, well, this side is wrong, so we don't need to even talk about it. Personally, I think that it's unconstitutional, but... I think that there's a good enough argument on the other side that we need to take the arguments on the other side seriously. And I think, constitutional or not, it would be nice to rewrite the statute, take it back to the way it was before 1947, where we don't have to even worry about this, because it's a needless risk. The benefit of having the speaker in the line of succession is not so great, and I 
discuss in the book policy reasons why I think there are, there are bad things about it, that we should risk the possibility, even the possibility of having a situation where we don't know who the president is. You should know at any given moment who the president is. I think we should wrap it up, but I'll give you the last word. I want to close by saying this has been a very productive conversation. I'm very glad we had it. I highly recommend to any lawyer who's interested in these issues and anyone in the educated lay public, this is a great book. And Brian, thanks very much for this opportunity. Thank you, Seth. Thank you for listening to this Faculty Book Podcast. For more podcasts, as well as audio and video of past Federalist Society events, please visit our website at www.federalistsociety.org forward slash multimedia.